Amen. Amen. He's faithful. Amen. We have so much to praise Him for this morning. I want to, uh, well, I first want to check and see, are you ready to sit at the table together and eat? No? Okay. So what are you talking about? I thought you were going to talk for a little bit. Well, it's, it's time for family meal. Well, one of the gifts that God gives to us in the church is that we can pull up to the table together and feast on, on His Word together. I remember growing up, when we would gather around the table, when everybody was there together, there was some... There were some rules, at least in my house. You don't eat until everybody's been served. Oh, it's a long time to wait. You, you serve somebody else before you take the last piece of whatever it is. You, you, you can't, can't take the bite of that dessert until the hostess, I always want to be the hostess, but, but until they take the bite first and then you eat the dessert. There, there was something when we would eat together that it brought fellowship. And, and you could go snarf down a bag of Doritos on your own, but it was different when you had family dinner together. Well, you can study God's Word on your own, and we need to. But there's a gift here this morning. We're going to feast on the words of the Lord together. Now, with that, I want you to, to go on a journey with me as we walk through the Word. In fact, this happens every week. You say, well, what, what's different? Have nothing. I'm just preparing you for what we do every week. We're going to dive in, and we're going to be listening to Jesus together through his word, okay? And we're, we're going to make a decision right up front. We're going to pray in just a minute that who cares what Brady has to say? Like, that's what I'm saying. We don't, we don't, we don't know what Brady has to say. And, and before you get too excited about that, who cares what you think about it either, okay? We want to know what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is thinking because that's where we're going to be fed. And so with that attitude, I want you to take your Bible, if you've got your Bible with you, or your device. We're going to be in the book of John here in just a minute, John 12. I want you to hold it in your hand, and we're going to ask Jesus to speak to us through his word. Jesus, I thank you that you are right here with us. And as you are about to perform your miracle and preaching again, where you take human words and you speak hundreds of unique personal messages when your word is proclaimed, Lord, we right now say, we want to hear you, Jesus. And maybe even more, Lord, than saying we want to hear you, we want to obey or to cooperate or to walk in whatever it is you have to say to us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as you have your Bible, we'll be in John chapter 23, or excuse me, chapter 12, verse 23 in just a moment. But I want to talk to you today about an event that comes at the end of Jesus' ministry. It's found in this 12th chapter of John's Gospel. Jesus is within now a few days of the crucifixion, and, and he knows what's coming up. He, he knows all, he knows what's coming, and he's leading there. And this whole city has been praising Jesus on this Palm Sunday. The account that we're reading here in, in John 12 is the account that we're celebrating here on Palm Sunday as, as people were so excited as he would come in in this triumphal entry. But just after the triumphal entry there in, in the second part of John 12, we see that the scripture tells us that there are these Gentiles, these Greeks, that want to meet with Jesus. When he's told this, I'm sure what came to his mind was the message of John 3.16. He had to be reminded of this truth that he didn't come just for the believers. 
He didn't come just for the Jews. He didn't come just for those who knew God. He didn't just come for the righteous. He didn't just come for the good. He came for the world. He came for everyone. And he knew that the only way for the larger world to be saved was for this message of John 3.16 to be, to be lived out. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now John penned this after as he was hearing from the Holy Spirit. But this message of John 3.16 was definitely in the heart of Christ. And what is this giving that this verse talks about? It's giving of Christ on the cross. So Jesus knows as he's engaging with these Gentiles, with these Greeks, that the only way that they can have salvation, the only way they can have hope, is for him to walk through what he's going to walk through in this holy week. Notice what he says here in John chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's an interesting expression. If you would have asked Nicodemus, I'm sure he would have said that the Son of Man or the Messiah, for him to be glorified, it would mean that they would put uh, purple robes on him or put a, a crown on his head or, or to give him some earthly kingdom. But, but that's what Nicodemus would have said. But Jesus says, just a few days away from the cross, he says, now is the time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, how is he going to be glorified? We know the rest of the account. We know what's coming at the end of, of this week here in Holy Week. For him to be glorified, it means that he's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again. Now, notice what he says about this in verse 24. He's speaking about what's about to take place. John 12, 24. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life, in other words, the one who wants to protect his life, the one who thinks so much about himself, the one who's so self-centered, the man who loves his life will lose it. The very life he's trying to hang on to, he will lose it. But the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It doesn't mean that, that we are to despise the breath in our lungs or to despise that we are alive. It means that, that we're not going to hold so tightly to our life that we can't give it away the way that Jesus is talking about giving his life away. Now notice what Jesus says here and what he doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, now go do what I told you to do. No, verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. He says, Follow me. In other words, do what I'm doing. Not just go do what I said, but, but do what I'm doing. I'm setting an example for you. Now, it's interesting that you and I, we never can be first with Jesus. He's always out ahead of us. He's always out leading the way. And he just says, come on, son. Come on, daughter. Come follow me. Come, come do what I'm doing. Why do we press in and, and look to see what Jesus is doing? Not, not just so we can be thankful, though that's good, so we can do or be a participant or be obedient to what he is doing. And so Jesus is saying, follow me. Follow him where? Where is he going? He's headed to the cross. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, I'm, I'm thankful for these next couple of verses. It encourages me when I see the, the humanity in Christ, fully God and fully man, when I see his humanness. He didn't enjoy the prospect of suffering. He didn't just like throw a party and say, man, I'm, I'm so excited that I'm going to experience shame and rejection. I'm so excited that I'm going to have physical death come upon me. That's not what Jesus was thinking. Look at verse 27. 
Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I suspect that there's not a more profound principle in all of Scripture than what we read here in verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, loses its identity in a new creation, it will die and abide alone. But if it loses its life, then it will gain it and will produce much fruit. Now I think what, what was happening here is, is we begin to see the heart of the message that was so difficult for the Jewish community to receive. They couldn't grasp it. They couldn't receive Jesus because of this very teaching that he was teaching and living out. I'm convinced it's, it's the most difficult thing for the Christian church today to grasp. And I think what he's talking about here is this universal principle that no life can be fruitful that's self-centered. There's no person who can, can have a fruitful life that's so addicted to self. No life can be fruitful that's self-centered. It's in losing our life that we really gain. That's what Jesus was teaching. That's what he was saying. That sounds strange. Well, the Jewish community felt the same thing. So that's not what we thought of. That's not what we came to hear. That's, that's not what we're about. What, what is this man saying? And because they had a hard time receiving it, they missed out on what Jesus was giving to them. This is because it's counter to everything in our culture, in, in the human race, that is taught to us. You and I, in our world, we are taught to protect our life. We are taught to protect our concerns, to protect our well-being, our security, our pleasures, our comfort. Look out for yourself. And Jesus says that's the best way to lose your life. But if you want to gain your life, then be willing to give it up for someone else. You'll not only gain your life, but you'll find that you'll be very fruitful. Now, when Jesus came on the scene teaching this, but worse yet, doing it, living it, it messed everything up. I mean, you just participated in the reenactment of what took place with, with the waving of the palm branches. And as Pastor Edgar said, you know, people put on the soccer team clothes and then said, uh, who cares? It was all because they thought they were getting something, and when the picture changed on them, or what they thought it would be, that's not what they signed up for. I, I wanted pomp and circumstance. I, I wanted all this freedom. I, I wanted all this power. I, I wanted all this political change, but I, I didn't really want that. I wanted to gain my life. I didn't sign up to lose my life. See, for the church... Then, and I think even the church now, it blew their mind. They said, that can't be. The very interesting thing to me is that the reason Israel rejected Christ was the very thing they desperately needed. And the very reason that the world today, even sometimes the church today, rejects Christ is the very thing that they desperately need in Jesus. And I want to take the balance of our time this morning to talk about, well, what is that thing? The book of John gives us four pictures we're going to look at today. Of how far God's love would go to reach you and me. And it's, it's even centered around this holy week. And we begin to see a, a new picture of how far will this love of God go. The first picture we find in John chapter 1 verse 10 
and 11. If you have your Bible turned there, you can kind of keep your finger in John. We'll be back and forth through the book of John. But uh, John 1, 10, and 11, we see this picture in this verse. The verse says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That Word came into His own, and His own received Him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Isn't this interesting? The very, very first picture that John gives us in his gospel, the very first word picture, very first image we get of Jesus, is a picture of a God who can be rejected. It's this picture of a God who can be rejected, a picture of a God who is knocking at the door. I see this connection with Revelation 3.20. You don't need to turn there, but listen to Revelation 3.20. Here I am, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This is that first image of, of how far God would go to love you, to love me. We get a picture of a God who can be rejected. Of all the paintings of Christ, one of my... Favorites, or one that has had the deepest impact on me, is Holman Hunt's painting of the lighting of the world, or the light of the world. It's a picture that you've probably seen, or a version of it, where Jesus is standing at a door. And in this picture you find Jesus with these priestly robes on, and and kingly robes with all kinds of ornamentation, and you find a a crown on his head, and he's got a lantern, a lamp in his hand here in his left hand, and it's giving light to his feet and to the path, and and you see this door that is, has weeds and greenery that's kind of grown over, implying the door has not been opened in, in a long while. And if you study the picture even more, this, the original of this is a life-size it was painted in life-size uh, setting. And you'll find that there's, there's no doorknob or handle in, implying that the door can only be opened on the other side. What's, what's happening here is as Jesus is knocking on this door, it's symbolizing the, the door of our heart. As Holman Hunt painted this picture, he was putting into an image what Revelation 3.20 tells us, I stand at the door and knock. We begin to see that this picture that John gives to us, John 1, 10 and 11, his own received him not. How far would God go to love you and me? He would put himself in a position to be rejected. He put himself in a position to be absolutely shut out. Now, I've seen this painting or reproductions of this painting for many years, but it dawned on me a few years back a new truth or new to me anyway when i looked at this i thought you know what really strikes me as jesus being the king of kings jesus is doing something that no king ever does you will never find a king knocking at a door have you ever seen president obama knocking at the door to his own press conference would anybody let me in kings don't do this Presidents don't do this. They don't go knocking on a door. They have whole teams of people that go ahead of them that make sure the doors are opened, that make sure that people receive them. In fact, if, if, if there is someone who has a door that won't receive that king or president, for some reason they have something negative, they will direct that king or that president somewhere else so they are not embarrassed, so, so, so their power is not thwarted. But, but no king goes knocking at a door. 
I bet in the seven plus years Barack Obama hasn't had to knock on a door his whole time in office. If there was any door he had to knock on, maybe it was his wife's. I, I don't know their relationship. I don't know who else could say, no, you can't come in. You see, power, position, and pomp, they don't expose themselves to rejection. You know why? You and I in our humanness, we don't like to be rejected. Can you tell me anything more painful than being personally rejected? I don't mean that someone doesn't like your shoes or, or even you didn't get the job that you hoped for. No, no, no. When someone rejects you, it's not something about you, it's you. There are very few things as painful as that. In fact, you, you may be like the, the overwhelming majority of people who would say, I'd rather deal with physical pain than someone to, to reject me personally. The people that I'm close to, the people that, that I love, for them to reject me, it's, it's a great fear. You know, we've trained ourselves pretty well to avoid this. We, we play games in our culture, in our world, in our humanness. It's beyond cultures. It's, it's the human race. We play these games where we begin to, to make some kind of overture to someone, and we wait to see does the door open up a little bit. And if they open up and receive just a little bit, then we, then we open up a little bit more. And if they open up more, then we open up a little bit more. You don't just put yourself all the way out there. That's too vulnerable. That's a good way to get rejected. And so we, we, we play these things in our, in our culture, in our society, where, where we don't quite give all of our blessing till we know how we receive. And it's this constant thing. It starts in middle school. We start being aware of what other people think of us. And we just get better at hiding what we feel, but I'm not so sure that we have grown past some of the middle school thoughts of, of what does someone think? Will they reject me or not? It's a part of the human race. We do this all the time. Rejection is painful. Yet here is an eternal God who puts himself in a rejectable, vulnerable position. You see, when you knock at a door, it's a symbol that you don't have the power. If you had the power, you'd have the keys, or you could just barge right through. You had the authority to go through. But when you're knocking, it's a symbol that you can be rejected. How far will God go to reach you and me? He would go so far as to put himself in a position where he could be rejected. See, that's one of the things that the children of Israel said, Ah, that's not what I had in mind. He's going to come in power. He's going to come in glory. He's not going to come like this. Remember what Jesus dealt with when Satan was tempting him in the desert? He came to Jesus and said, hey, come to the top of this temple and just jump off, throw yourself down and let the angels rescue you. It'll be a great demonstration of your power, of the authority. You can call the angels. And Jesus says, yeah, but that's not the Christ that I am. That's not who I am. See, there's no other God in all of the world like our God. There's no other God who will do what he does. All the other gods, lowercase g, will, will, will teach in their mystical religions that you have to do something to get to them. But not our God. The one true God goes to you and goes to me. He gives us the privilege of shutting him out. That's what you call vulnerability, self-exposure. Now the second picture. It, it took place the same day or maybe the day before, or the day after rather, this story of the Greeks coming to Jesus here right after the triumphal entry in John 12. 
we read about this, the Palm Sunday. Just before that, in Palm Sunday, the beginning of John 12, we read of this triumphal entry. Jesus had begun his ministry three and a half years before. It was this ministry of miracles, this ministry of great teaching, this ministry where he would heal lepers, he would heal blind eyes. People would see him, they were flocking around him, and he saw crowds chanting, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna to the King of Israel. And he saw, as he looked around all the crowd, and he thought, what would be appropriate for me to ride in on? And we get this second picture of how far God would go to love us. And we've read and we've heard before about Jesus riding in on a donkey. And we get this image on this Palm Sunday day as we think about Jesus coming into town and people chanting Hosanna, but it had to have caught their eye. What is he doing? We see a picture of a God who chose to ride a donkey. Now, I've read this passage for years, and you have read it many times before, but I hadn't made this connection to this Old Testament passage, at least the second part of it, until just a few years ago. It's in Zechariah 9.9. Listen, I'll read it to you. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey. So, Jesus did exactly what was prophesied. He fulfilled this prophecy when he rode in on a donkey. And I had read that before, but it was the next verse, in verse 10, that that I had not caught as as strong as I had in the last couple years. But you know what I have seen here, verse 10? I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. Could it be? That Jesus was not just fulfilling a prophecy. Could it be that he, he is choosing to come in on a donkey to say, let me give you a picture of what my kingdom is like. Let me give you a picture. It is the exact opposite of coming in on a horse. It's an exact opposite of coming in with this military power. I am going to be totally different than any other king you have ever seen. See, when a Roman general would ride through the city of Jerusalem, they would come through prancing on a horse. When an emperor from Babylon would show up, they would come riding a horse. When Pharaoh came in a chariot, it was pulled by horses. This horse is a symbol of pomp, a symbol of ceremony. It's a, it's a symbol of power. The horse was equivalent to the first line of attack from the military. It was a military instrument. It'd be like riding in on a tank. It's coming in with the the power and, and the protection that you have and that you could provide. Don't trust in horses or chariots, as Scripture says, means don't trust in natural, physical, military power. Don't trust in the flesh. And now look what Jesus is giving an image. Look to the donkey. It's a symbol of service, a symbol of humility. Jesus is, in other words, saying, I'll tell you what my kingdom will be like. It's much more like a donkey than a horse. When I show up on the scene, this is going to be more fitting for me as I come in humility. How far would a God like our God go to give love to you and to me? He would humble himself to come to a place of riding in on a donkey. The Jews said, that's not the Messiah we're looking for. And they totally missed it. Now the third picture that God has given to us, a picture of God, we, we see later on in this Holy Week. It's on Thursday. Jesus got his 12 disciples together and said, Israel missed it. Jerusalem doesn't understand me. 
I want to find out if you understand this. So he took this basin of water and towel and he got down and he started washing their feet. And we see this picture third of a God who got on his knees and washed feet. Now, Jesus does this in the privacy of a room together with them. Why? Well, if the masses could not receive him riding in on a donkey, that blew their mind, then how in the world would they receive him as this king of the Jews on his feet, washing the feet of those around him? I read of this and I think of what Peter would have said. Peter looked at him and said, God, you have... You've got to be kidding me. Have, have mercy on me, Lord. You'll never wash my feet. God, you wash my feet. Maybe I'll wash your feet. And then Jesus replies, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have no part of me. You see, it's this idea of a God who would wash feet that blew the mind of the disciples. It blew the mind of the religious community. It was downright scandal in the religious circles. It invaded every walk of life. No other religion in the world is like it. How far will God go to reach you and to reach me? It's interesting. He'll do downright ungodly things to reach you. I don't mean unholy things or impure things. I mean things that you would never expect an almighty God to do. Things you'd never expect a king to do. To put himself in a position where he can be rejected. Put himself in a position where he is humbled. Put himself in a position when he is on his hands and knees serving. Jesus says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Now the fourth and final picture that we catch that we're going to talk about today anyway, is a picture of a God who gave his life on a cross. Now, this mental image is one that we know well and we should know well. It's one that we highlight this time of year and we should highlight this time of year, but I'm afraid that we could miss what we're looking at when we see this in Scripture. I'm afraid that we could easily miss it when we sing songs about it and we forget what this picture is of a God and how far his love would go. We begin to think of what the Jews were thinking when they think of the Messiah coming. And they would think about a Messiah who would come with a crown, with robes, with a throne. And yet, here he has a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. And he had a robe, but it was tattered. And he had a throne of sorts, but it was a cross. And we begin to see how far would this God go? He would give himself to die, but not just any death. Die, the capital punishment death, the most excruciating, painful death they could imagine. They tried other forms, but people died too quickly. It wasn't painful enough. They found the worst thing that they could think of and said, this is how we're going to punish those who are criminals. And Jesus said, I am willing to die, even death, on a cross for those whom I love. This is how far God's love will go for you. And yet the Jewish leadership, in face of all these pictures, says, look, it's proof. He's not God. Why? Because that's not what we had in our mind. I think maybe the point for some of us today is 
We could be right up in the thick of things with Jesus, but if, if we allow our preconceived ideas of God, our preconceived pictures of how things should turn out, our preconceived uh, images of what things should look like, we could be just like those who are waving palm branches one day and pointing fingers the next. We could be just like the Jews who missed it. We could be just like the early church who, who didn't receive it right away. Why? Because they're ignorant? No, no, no. Because they held so tightly to the picture of what they thought things should be. Okay, Brady, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the, you know, Revelation 3.20. I'm okay with the donkey. It's kind of weird, but that's fine. I'm okay with him washing feet, and, and I'm okay with this. But so what's the point? Friend, someone here today desperately needs to know how far God has and will go to d- demonstrate his love for you. But somehow these pictures have become vanilla. They've come, well, that's just kind of what we expect. Hey, hey, the greatest power and authority that has ever lived, that's in the universe, you compare it to anything, it is far beyond that, has put himself in a position where you could reject him. Not someone else, not your family, not society, you. Me. Why would he ever put himself in that place? Because I love you so much, I'm coming to seek and to save the lost. Every chance he got. Oh, there's lots of people showing up at church today with palm branches. Jesus says, let me tell you what I'm about. No horses. No tanks. No body armor. Donkey. Or as I like to think, a bicycle. Uh, maybe that's not true. I'm going to come in humbly. That you'll begin to see it's not power like you thought of. Oh, there's power, but not like you thought. He'd go that far to make sure you'd understand his love. And then he gathers those who are close to him. That would be you and me. They missed it out there on Mayhew Road. But coming close, Jesus says. Do you understand? I love you so much, he says. Jesus, get up. Don't get on your knees. Don't, don't wash my feet. That's, I'll do that. No, no. He says, hey, you have no part of me until you understand this. Your God did downright ungodly things, not immoral, but beyond what we could ever imagine to show his love for you. And then we come to a cross. Appropriately so, we hang around our neck and we put on our walls, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good way to remember, but, but I'm afraid that we have scrubbed it so clean that we don't recognize what this is. This is, this is a scandal. No religion wants their, their leader, their Messiah, is a convicted criminal on death row with public humiliation. There's so many things I want to say, but it's, it's not, not family-friendly right now. It's bad humiliation. It's not rated PG humiliation. The Son of God. Here's what I think Jesus is trying to say to us today. Oh, my son and daughter. It's Easter again. I could care less if you get a new dress. I could care less if you get a new suit. I could care less if, if you've got the big dinner planned. I could care less how all the pomp and circumstance goes, but but would you come close to the images that I'm giving you? Would you remember that I'm still knocking? 
Now, if, if you're getting freaked out because the outline, there's four more things. I'm not going to preach on that today because the Lord told me to spend all the time on the first part. But at another time, we'll come back. Hey, this all reverses. In Revelation, there'll be a day that he's no longer knocking. There's judgment. There'll be a day when he's not on a donkey, he's on a horse. There'll be a day when he's not on his knees, but every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. There'll be a day when he's not on a cross, but he's in heaven, and we will be there. But he said, I didn't come for that yet. So I think Jesus says this. Look at me. Somebody needs to be encouraged by how far he'd go to love you. Somebody else needs to be challenged at what it means to follow him. Here's what he says. Do what I do. Put yourself in shoes where you can be rejected. Well, Jesus, you can handle it. You're the son of God. No, you put yourself and, and let people reject you. Well, maybe they won't like my shoes or they won't. No, no, they'll hate you. He says, <laughs> when, when you are persecuted for my name's sake, have a party. You'll be blessed. That should be in the edited Bible. It's not in there. It's stuff we don't like. It's in there. When's the last time you've been rejected? God, help us. God, help me for the things that I think is persecution. It makes me nauseated when I think about myself. You ever get nauseated when you think about yourself? With stuff that gets in your crawl? Oh, feelings were hurt. And this. Friend, none of us have been rejected the way Jesus has been rejected. Maybe there's somebody... And our circle of influence this week. If we could get over the fear of, what if they say no? They said no. What if they say, I don't want to go? Say they don't want to go. What if they laugh at me? Laugh at yourself. You're kind of funny yourself. Just follow me. What would it look like for you and I to ride a donkey? Oh, I don't mean get on, a, on an animal. To come through in humility. To choose it. When the crowds are chanting our name. Oh. God's going to speak to someone today about what this could look like tomorrow. Maybe this afternoon. There's others of us. that Jesus is saying, I've told you. Get on your hands and knees. Begin to serve. Begin to take care of what needs to be done. This Easter, could it be that you follow me in doing what I'm showing you, what I'm about, and then here. What? What is this, Jesus? You want me to, to physically die on a cross? Maybe he's saying, what would it be like if you'd crucify your own desires? What if you'd die out to yourself? What if the great war that wages within you? Time with Jesus or Netflix? You know, the real serious stuff. Lay it down. What about... My plans for the future, my 401k, my job path, the person I want to marry. What? I crucify it for what you have, Jesus. That's what he meant when we started. The man or woman who tries to hang on to his life will surely lose it. But the one who says, I begin to get it. You may reject me. <laughs> then I get to throw a party because it's just like Jesus. I'm going to ride a donkey. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on my hands and knees and wash feet. I, I'm going to die out to myself. I'm, I'm sowing seed and there will be fruit. 
Stand with me, church. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, I'm hungry to hear you. My brothers and sisters want to hear you today. I thank you, Jesus, that you've been working in that Greek word, glossae, of taking communication and splitting it into hundreds of different personal messages. No one knows more than me, God, that I, that I don't know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. So glad you know what you're doing. Lord, would you allow your word to hit the hearts of my brother and sister today that this Easter, it could be totally different. Not as a collection of a spiritual highlight reel of things they put on their trophy shelf of amazing things. No, 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 no. But a realization of how far you went in the face of crowds not getting it. God, forgive us for putting on the soccer clothes. And as soon as we see signs of a loss, we ditch them. As soon as there's an image of Christianity that's not our perfect picture of how a Christian life should go, we begin to allow doubt to rush in. We begin to allow compromise to come in. We begin to allow complacency to come in. Jesus, forgive us. Would you empower us to humble ourselves to a place where we are transparent and vulnerable like you? Where we prefer others better than ourselves like you? That we die out to our own will like you for the sake of the Father? You've told us we could join in on your fruit. So Jesus, I proclaim your words, not mine, over my brothers and sisters today. May they go with a deeper, confrontational understanding of how far you went to love on them. And how far you empower us with your spirit to go in loving those around us. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. As you take off, go in the understanding of God's great love for you. And look for someone this week that you could demonstrate that love to. God bless you. You're dismissed.